Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Does the name Gertrude Bell ring a bell? She's the part proper Victorian and part modern woman who traveled extensively in the Middle East and who, among other trailblazing firsts, helped establish the new country of Iraq following World War I. Sometimes called the female Lawrence of Arabia, Bell died in 1926 at the age of 58. So clearly, she's not my guest today. But Sabina Kreienbuhl and Ziva Olbaum are. They are behind the award-winning, riveting feature documentary, Letters from Baghdad. It chronicles the story of this amazing, remarkable, powerful woman who helped shape the modern Middle East following World War I. The accomplished, talented, creative women who brought Gertrude's story to the big screen are my guests today. Let's start with Sabina, an award-winning film editor with more than 20 theatrical documentaries and narrative feature credits. I'll rattle off a few. My Architect, for which she received an American Cinema Editor's Eddie or Ace Award nomination. Mad Hot Ballroom, one of the top 20 highest-grossing documentaries. Picasso and Brock go to the movies, produced by Martin Scorsese. Letters from Baghdad mark Sabina's directorial debut. Ziva is an award-winning producer and photographer. Her film credits not only include Letters from Baghdad, which she co-directed and produced, but also Ahead of Time, a feature-length documentary about centenarian journalist Ruth Gruber. It premiered at the Toronto Film Festival and received six Best Documentary Awards. She was also the executive producer of the featured documentary, Renee and I. Ziva's photographs can be found in international public collections, including the Bibliothèque Nationale de France and the Brooklyn Museum. Two of her monographs have been published by Rizzoli International. So, Sabina and Ziva, you might not be spies, explorers, or the first person to climb all the peaks of the Engelhorner Range in the Swiss Alps, but not for nothing. Your film careers put you smack in the middle of a male-dominated field. Move over, Gertrude. Let's talk about what movies mean to each of you and how you guys got involved in the business. Sabina? Well, I'm originally from Switzerland and came to New York in 1986 to study at NYU. Uh, film school. So that sort of brought me to film. I was uh, very excited to be involved in a school that was very widely known as one of the top schools for filmmaking. At the time, there was nothing, no school in Switzerland uh, available. And I, I originally thought, oh, maybe I should go maybe to Rome or London. And then I came across NYU and applied and got in. And so that sort of started my my delving into film. But your uh, appetite was whetted before you applied to NYU, right? Yes, I was I was an avid uh, watcher of films. I grew up watching a lot of American movies on television in Switzerland and also, of course, a lot of the European classics. Switzerland has a tradition of showing the films in their original versions, so hmm. I had a, a, an access to really the way they were supposed to be seen right. early on. And yes, and then I uh, started at NYU and graduated in 90 or 91. I, I decided um, that I would like to uh, work as an editor because I felt that that was a, one of the fields where I probably was, where it was easier to actually make a living right off the bat uh, than directing. And so I started working as an editor in fiction films and then transitions over to documentaries because I've 
really, really got excited about the fact of learning about a new topic with each film that I was working on. How many women were editors back in the 90s? Actually, you know what? Editors, the editing field was always populated by women. That's interesting. Yes, it was. It's sort of like the typical thing, the, the behind the, <laughs> the scenes. scenes. Yeah, you is, weren't calling the shots, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I guess also because editing is a position where you need to have diplomatic skills because you're working very closely with the director. Sure. And you have, you know, you're the objective voice mm -hmm. at the table and you see the flaws and, and, and the good sides of all the material. So I think it sort of lends itself to be probably a field that women excel in. The comfortability is maybe not what, what brought me in that field, but mm -hmm. really more the fact of being right at the point of decision-making. Gotcha. And Ziva? Well, I've always been really interested in people and cultures and stories and history. Uh, I have a degree in anthropology. Yes, I noticed that. So that's kind of an interesting yeah. background for what you're doing today, in a way. Absolutely. And I became very interested in photography during college and, in fact, traveled throughout the Middle East taking photographs during college and after college in an attempt sort of to get closer to people and tell people's stories. And that basically burgeoned into a full-time career. I had a studio on 22nd Street mm -hmm. for many, many years as a still photographer. And did you work for anybody in particular? I was always a freelance photographer. And I, my work ranged pretty broadly, but I ended up actually focusing on food photography. But the, the thing I always did is I had my own personal projects. And one of the projects, for example, that um, I did a book on was cyanotypes, which are, it's a historic photographic process. And the thing that really interested me in them was that the first person to ever illustrate a book entirely with photography was a woman named Anna Atkins, mm -hmm. who people have never heard of. No. So that was sort of my first edging into stories about women who people have not heard of. So how did the two of you come together? Well, we were working on a film about another remarkable woman named Ruth Gruber, mm -hmm. and the name of that film was Ahead of Time. Ruth Gruber was a, an amazing New Yorker. She just died last November at the age of 105. Oh, gosh. Uh-huh. And a lot of what she did, a lot of her accomplishments centered around the Middle East. So when we were up in her apartment at one point, I, I produced the film and Sabina edited that film. We asked her if she, Sabina asked her if she knew of Gertrude Bell. And she had never heard of Gertrude Bell, but I had just read the biography, which Sabina had read years before, on Gertrude Bell. And we started kicking around the idea of doing a documentary about her because she was so interesting and amazing, contradictory, complicated and involved with the establishment of Iraq. As I was reading about Gertrude Bell, there was a part of me that was, yeah, embarrassed that I had never heard of her. So on some level, you're coming together and making this movie is 
among other things, to me, sounds like a real public service. It was always our intention to really bring Gertrude back into history uh, because one of the things that we noticed, even, I mean, you, you have, you can be totally um, feel comfortable of not knowing her because really <laughs> no one knows her. <laughs> At least we found out in our research, even in England, where we were, you know, we went to her archives that are located at Newcastle University up in the north and on the train ride and where Wherever we went, every hotel we stayed in, we would ask everybody, you know, have you heard of Gertrude Bell? And even in her own neighborhood, Mm. in the back, yeah, no one knew. Interestingly, though, she is very well known and highly regarded still in Iraq. And a lot of Iraqis know of her. In spite of the fact that that has been a female repressive society. The contrast is really kind of stunning. We've had uh, many Iraqis, including several Iraqi ambassadors to different countries, watch the film and come to screenings. And they all were, they all knew who Gertrude Bell was, Miss Bell. They all knew who Miss Bell was. <laughs> Were the stars aligned for the two of you that you started your own company between the Rivers Productions? This was actually what Ziva mentioned at on this film production uh, ahead of time. And then it took us about three years to have our schedules aligning because we both, as you said, we were in different you know, careers and different uh, occupied with different things. And then uh, we sat together and decided, let's do a fiction film and write a treatment. But shortly after we started doing that, uh, we found out that Werner Herzog and Ridley Scott announced that they would do a film about Gertrude Bell, a fiction film. So we were... What are the odds of that happening? I know. It's, but, you know, it, it, it always happens like that. We were just sort of delving into it. But then that was actually almost like a blessing in disguise because we were, that sort of made us rethink about how we wanted to approach and tell the story of Gertrude Bell. And because our background is in documentaries, we started to really go back to the primary source materials of the of, of starting to read her letters. And of which there were 1,600? That's exactly. Oh, good yes. 1,600 and, and also 7,000 photographs. Yes. And so we started to get very involved in looking through her letters. And tr- then we decided actually that we didn't want to do the film just from her point of view. We wanted to include the voices of her colleagues and her family and her friends. And that was a really fantastic and interesting challenge. So we sort of went back and forth looking at her letters and then seeing that she noted visiting certain people and talking to different people, writing to different people, and then we would explore their archives. You're an editor. You're a photographer slash producer, but you've got this massive project that you're thinking about, and then you say, we're going to direct this. Yeah, it well, was the, not a question. The interesting thing is that it, when people say, if you knew everything that lay ahead, you may not have made not, that Temporary choice. insanity, in right? Course, Temporary course. insanity. Learning by doing. Yes. 
I mean, for me, it, it was, and interestingly enough, it was the Gertrude Bell project that I have carried, that I carried around for a long time and sort of had as something that I wanted to do one day. I know from working with so many directors, it really, a documentary really takes over your whole life. And you really must be dedicated and, and passionate about the story. And that was a story that I felt I was passionate, that I would be able to throw myself full force into it and, and basically uh, abandon everything else to do it. And so it was just a coincidence, a lucky coincidence that we, you know, were together at Ruth Scoobers and I popped the question and Siva had re <laughs> read the biography. So it was something that was on my mind, but I was waiting to find the proper project. Isn't that wonderful it. when the stars do become aligned and this is supposed to happen? Yes. And for me, the discussion came on the heels of this film that we did with Ruth, Ruth Gruber, Gruber. Mm -hmm. and there was so much about making the film, so much richness and layers to it, and also the collaboration. The piece of the filmmaking which I really responded to was the collaborative effort, because as a still photographer running my own studio, of course, I worked with lots of people. I but had, it is solitary. But it's very solitary. Yeah. I mean, I had assistants and food stylists sure. and prop stylists, but I was very attracted to the idea. We knew, Sabina and I knew that when we worked together and on ahead of time, even though neither one of us was the director, there was a, the director, Bob Richman, of course, was obviously in the, in the mix to a great extent. But we we were able to work together on that film in a really cohesive way as though we had been working together before and we'd never met each other. Does that surprise you or is that under the umbrella of females are really amazing? Well, when, you know, kind of. <laughs> well, I think what, one of the things, one of the things which you just can't fake and you can't force is that we have the same aesthetic and we have the same, we pick the same clips. And we started to see that when we were working. So that maybe you guys might have been separated at birth. <laughs> Possibly. Because <laughs> actually, now that you were saying that, I was just thinking back. My best collaborations as an editor were with guys. Really? My, but maybe. <laughs> but we, I mean, for us, it was, we, we really, we, we run like clockwork. We really have sort of, we're on the same. That's so interesting. Yeah. But, you know, I want to share with you that I recently interviewed a one-time producer who directed, recently directed her first feature film and was so excited about it, has her own company. And on the set... I think much to her surprise, it was not an easy road to hoe when she was being the boss, obviously, and there were certain men, maybe, you know, camera people, whatever, like, I'm taking direction and orders from her. How do you gals feel about that? Well, I have, um, I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> All right. All right. Granted, that. this isn't video. No, I'm not cutting that because what I'm going to say about that is next to but, me, you are not old. Okay. End but, of that conversation. But the reason that I said that is mm. because I do have a whole background of interactions with guys. Yeah, but not as a director. Not, but as the, as the photographer that the male assistant 
moved my lights when I went to the bathroom, or as the photographer where the male assistant went directly to the client, you know, making some comment. I also had the experience of going to take my film to a lab and for the lab to take down the information and say, okay, who's the photographer? And then when I say I am, they go, no, no, I mean the photographer. So so <laughs> I was I'm quite able and ready to blow them off. Totally. We had situation in when we were filming um, the interviews where we got a little bit of pushback from an art director or from, you know, people who are from guys. Not a problem. Was there an issue in terms of the two of you raising money? Well, and that's interesting that you say that because that is actually one of the factors where women are fall short, fall or sh- I yes. mean, through no fault yes. of their yes. own. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, in spite hard. of your street creds. Yeah, it's 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 hard to say like whether that affected our personal fundraising effort. I don't think so. I mean, we we got money from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We got money from. The New York State Council on the Arts. Right, right, right. And we did a Kickstarter campaign. So those were sort of very, how shall I say, they were not... Gender neutral. Yeah, they oh. were kind of gender neutral, but I, I don't think know. we were very fortunate. Yeah. I mean, for one, re- for one thing, we began the project without having a clear sense of the funding. Okay, okay, but you just knew you had to do this. I mean, it was something you just couldn't tamp down. Exactly. Absolutely. But we were really fortunate in that we connected with people that were so phenomenally generous. And, you know, we were really able to maneuver the way through the fundraising pitfalls. And it was super challenging because we were doing a historical documentary. It was not a social issue. It was not seen as an urgent story. So there were a whole set of funds that we were not eligible for. Interesting. So we could not have done this film without the National Endowment for the Humanities. Let's just hope that that's going to stay (laughs) alive and well. Very, very important. I mean, it's, it's actually amazing how generous they are and what a big proportion of our film they did fund. Uh, They're probably one of the biggest funds, but it's also one of the hardest Mm. to apply to because, you know, you have to do like a 75-page dissertation. You have to get all the advisors for each single humanity theme that you are touching uh, in the film, in the project. And of course, our film did a lot. I mean, there is the photography angle, there's the archaeology angle, there is the woman's angle, there is the Middle East angle, historian. There's no basis left to, you know, uncover. Yeah. Well, it also helped us, going through that process really helped us think in so many different deep ways about the film and about what it, what we wanted the film to say. It was a great process, actually. Mm-hmm. So let's move on over to Gertrude Bell. It's Tilda Swinton, who is Gertrude Bell. Yes, she's the voice of she's Gertrude voice. Bell. But and she, she's, the, she's the primary voice. There's a few other voices, but why it is different, let's say, from a traditional historical documentary is... We decided very early in the process we did not want to use contemporary interviews with historians, archaeologists, with people that are looking back at the period.
period and analyzing the right. period for the audience. We really wanted to create an immersive experience and go back in time. So the film is actually placed three years after Gertrude Bell's death because everybody that is interviewed, played by actors, right. all these characters, their interviews are verbatim primary source text that they either wrote in the memoir or in a letter or in a political communique. So we we took those words and basically turned it into an interview. And in that way, the film is very, very different. Before we actually go into the film, just answer this question for me. How long did it take you? We started working full time in 2012. So that's five, five full years. And the first bit of footage that we got after we sort of had the idea and were thinking about when we were, would start working. The first bit of footage we got was actually in 2011. And it's, in fact, in a very prominent place in the film at the very beginning, where you see Baghdad from the turn of the century. All right, let's do Gertrude Bell. Tell us a little bit about her life. Well, she was a uh, Victorian woman born in 1868. And she was born to a wealthy industrialist family in the north of England. She was educated at Oxford. She was one of the very few women who had the opportunity to go to Oxford at that time. And they, even though they did not allow women to graduate, she received highest honors or uh, first in uh, modern history, making her the first woman to Mm -hmm. do that. Um, She then uh, went to Tehran because her uncle was the ambassador to Persia. And she went there in 1892. She fell in love with the East, and she also fell in love with a man who she was not allowed to marry because he was not of her same class. Uh, Her parents felt he was a gambler, so they did not approve of the— He was a Middle Easterner? No, no, no. He was worked in the the office, in the Uh foreign service. Okay. So— that was a great disappointment to her, and he subsequently died very soon after that. <laughs> of a broken was, heart? <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, who knows? He mm-hmm. fell into a river. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. So, uh-huh. so she did... Whatever uh, the hell she wanted to, apparently, yes. based on the little that I read about her, you know, mm-hmm. scaling yes. mountains and, yeah. uh, yes. you know... She traveled she, extensively, did world traveling, and then at a certain point in 1900, she... What went to Jerusalem because she had a, a family friend was ambassador to Jerusalem, German ambassador to Jerusalem, to the region, and then started taking side trips out into the desert and traveled in the desert extensively. And ultimately, she was recruited by British military intelligence during World War One to help them with their tribal notes and Mm -hmm. charts and maps. One of her assets was she was always very interested in languages. And so she learned the Arabic, she learned Farsi, uh, and this aside from European languages. Mm -hmm. And also really became familiar with the tribal languages and the dialects of each tribe. So she really had an unbelievable firsthand knowledge of the region, not just ethnographically, but really um, geographically. And that kind of knowledge was what attracted the British 
uh, intelligence service to really recruit her. She was alongside T. Lawrence and Winston Churchill making the decisions about the modern state of Iraq. So why the hell was she written out of history? Oh, that's a great question. We have a lot of theories about that. In the film, for example, you can see that she was one of very few people who attended the meetings of the Cairo conference. It's very clear. We have the minutes of the meetings in the film. And I guess you wouldn't know if you didn't know a little bit of the backstory that in the memoirs of some of the men who attended those meetings, she's magically erased. (laughs) She doesn't appear. Mm -hmm. So there were several situations Mm -hmm. where we ran across the primary source not, you know, document that reinforced, that confirmed her attendance somewhere, and she's just not mentioned. Yeah. We have one <laughs> one quote by a, one of her contemporaries, an American missionary, Dorothy Vaness, who says at the very end of the film, it's sad that she wasn't even mentioned in, in a book about Iraq. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, she really wasn't mentioned in the latest biography of T. Lawrence called Lawrence in Arabia that came out about two years ago. So and that's a huge sin of omission, isn't it? it yes. Kind of, yes. yes. But the thing that's so, and the thing that's so interesting is that when we read that book, we became aware that General Clayton, who was Gertrude Bell's direct supervisor in Cairo, was also T.E. Lawrence's direct military supervisor. And he wrote at some point after her death, that she's the one that gave T.E. Lawrence his maps and charts, which allowed him to accomplish his piece of the Arab Revolt in 1916, which made him famous. When one has a project and you start to work on a project, and then that as you're going along, getting more and more immersed and smacking your hand to your head, that letters from Baghdad almost had to be like a life-altering experience for you. Well, yes, definitely. It is very interesting to actually see sort of firsthand how history is being transmitted into the present Mm -hmm. and over time and what is being omitted and how things are being omitted. That was a very, very interesting thing to uncover. And, and, And obviously in this particular situation, really how a very important woman has been written out of history. I mean, it's so much easier to appreciate it when you see it with your own eyes, when you see it with, you know, it's irrefutable. And it's really quite stunning. Mm-hmm. We, we actually have um, one of our academic advisors, Priya Satya, at Stanford. We asked her why she thought that Gertrude Bell was written out of history, and she had a great response. She said that for many years, decades, going out into the desert was a test of British masculinity, and that after Gertrude Bell did it, she yeah. sort of broke the spell. How did you come to cast Tilda Swinton? Was that just a, 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 the perfect match for you guys, a no-brainer? It was our first choice. I mean, she doesn't appear in the film. Right. It's just her voice. But when you look at the photographs of her and Gertrude Bell, they really look very much alike. So one of our executive producers introduced us to her, and it happened that she had 
been cast for a film about Gertrude Bell as Gertrude Bell 10 years before we approached her and that film unfortunately never came Did to Did you be. know that? No. No, we had She no told idea. us when Isn't we that actually crazy? were there uh-huh. recording with her she said it and so she was very excited and 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 you know knew about Gertrude Bell and was happy to be part of this project. And so now that this film is out there, what's it been like for you? We just premiered the film in the UK, mm-hmm. and that was really... Big. <laughs> yes, it was fantastic. It's all very exciting. But it's really exciting that Gertrude Bell's family really loves the film because they are... She has descendants she married? and had... No, it's, her, the ha- it's the descendants of her half-siblings. Oh, okay. So, mm-hmm. but there are many of them, many cousins, and mm-hmm. they've all come to screenings. And we also actually interviewed her niece, who was the last person alive, we believe, that knew, knew her. Gertrude yes. Bell. Mm-hmm. And they really feel as though they've told us that we've captured her essence. And then it's all really exciting when Iraqis see the film mm-hmm. and they feel we've captured the history of their country. And so it's been very, um, very gratifying. And, and the Iraqis of all different ethnic backgrounds, which is really one of the things, yeah, you know, one that of unify, her, yeah. her, her key mission was that to unify and, and to create a, a government that was all inclusive and she was a champion of tolerance, and to see now that we have all the different Iraqi ethnicities seeing the film and and really appreciating that part of history that sort of, you know, acknowledged that there was an Iraq at some point with a lot of different ethnic groups. Sabina and Ziva, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank and you. And continued success. And to you too, Gertrude Bell. Yes. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.